Hi, I'm Bucky Stanton, and I'm here with Arwen Mohun, Professor of the History of Technology at the University of Delaware and author of Risk, Negotiating Safety in American Society. In this episode of Technology Stories COVID-19 edition, we're talking about how a historical perspective can help us understand, quote, flattening the curve, end quote, and other graphic representations of risk. So Arwen, we're seeing this flattening the curve graphic everywhere from the pages of the New York Times to memes on the internet. What, what, can you tell us a little bit about why this is an important technology, uh, the representation itself, and, and what kind of historical precedence we have for managing crises with these sort of representations? Uh, Bucky, I've just been fascinated at how ubiquitous the flattening the curve imagery is. It's happened again this morning. The New York Times had two pages of uh, graphic representations of curves in different states. And this has been going on almost since this crisis started. And we've also seen it everywhere in um, memes and counter memes and debate. Um, and it's fascinating to me because as a historian of risk, I, re I recognize um, a strategy for communicating risk that goes back almost 300 years and has been tried in all kinds of different forms. Um, so in answer to your question about how is this a technology, I would say that this is a, a technology of communication, these kinds of graphic representations of risk. Um, they're technologies that are uh, designed to convince people that um, the mathematical information that they represent is both understandable and actionable and believable um, to create what the historian of um, quantification, the reporter calls trust in numbers. And that's a really great way to put it about why this is a technology and how these kind of numbers come together to form and perform uh, actions in the public and, and kind of govern us. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about the history of these technologies of information communication and public health? And, and how they've informed epidemics and endemics and in the history of America, for example? Sure, so it's quite surprising how old these uh, strategies are. The first documented use of them uh, in, the, in America um, goes almost uh, back almost 300 years to an era in which there were frequent smallpox um, epidemics, which killed and disfigured um, many, many people. And so um, a very, what we might view now as a primitive form of risk communication called a table of mortality was used to convince people um, to have themselves inoculated against smallpox. And, um, this required a huge leap of faith because what, or trust in numbers, because what inoculation is, is that uh, a doctor or a practitioner put a slit in somebody's skin and put pus from a smallpox uh, pustule and would induce um, a, a case of, a mild case of smallpox as an alternative to getting really, really sick or dying. So it, um, 
you, you had to trust that this was going to work and numbers and these uh, representations of risk were an important tool in doing so, at least for educated people. Fascinating. And I, I remember in our preliminary discussions, you talking about this really interesting I, uh, I graphic representation that wasn't just number based that I never really heard a version of, which was about stacking dead bodies to the moon. What was it? Oh, no, not quite that. So um, in my book about risk, I studied um, a group of people who consider themselves to be safety experts mm -hmm. and who tried to change the behavior the risk-taking behavior of Americans in the early 20th century. And one of the ways that they did this was they um, commissioned children's books on the theory that children would learn new behaviors and then teach their parents or guilt their parents into new behaviors. And one of these, so these books are full of different kinds of representations of risk, but the one that really stuck in my mind is macabre uh, was about accidents, uh, automobile accidents that injured pedestrians. And it involved a graphic which uh, represented the number of deaths every year mm. as tombstones stretching from New York to Chicago. Um, I, there's no evidence that this was particularly effective, but it sure is striking. Uh, so I'm interested in this relationship between representations and risks we're exploring, but it comes to mind that there's also this same relationship between the curves and the arcs and the graphing and graphic representations of the stock market and flattening the curve in the sense that they're both risk oriented. They're both mm -hmm. describing different kinds of risk, but we still use the same word. And we still kind of fundamentally and conceptually think about them differently, but this risk element unifies them. And I'm interested in if there's kind of a historical story that you unearthed in your research about the relationship between these and how we kind of became, as, as, as some will say, a risk society. Well, uh, first of all, it's important to understand um, that thinking about risk is thinking about the future. Hmm. So, um, and making predictions about the future, and also, most importantly, trying to find ways to control what happens in the future by altering uh, behavior in the present. And so those stock market curves are, um, do very much the same thing as this flattening the curve graphic in the sense that they, um, show people a, a trajectory, a, a series of potential trajectories that can be altered by certain kinds of decision making or other factors. Um, and so the bigger context for this is um, a, a societal commitment that has grown stronger and stronger and stronger since the especially the Enlightenment of the 18th century, um, to do what um, has sometimes be called, been called colonizing the future. And this has become so normalized now in our world that we just think it's a prudent thing to do to uh, invest for old age in something like mutual funds or um, to buy insurance, which when you think about it, is uh, again, another one of these leaps of faith that this is actually worth the money because you will maybe need it and 
that you will um, at some level get them, you'll get the money back in some way. Um, so we live in a society that's just saturated with these kinds of arguments. However, um, it's also true that in terms of risk perception, people don't necessarily see themselves as individuals within these um, kinds of projections of what might happen to the future. They don't necessarily think that this applies to them. Um, and a certain subset of the population rejects this outright. So, you know, these protesters who are upset because they can't go get a haircut because they're absolutely sure they're not the person who is going to get um, COVID-19 or that it's a fraud um, is mirrored historically in people who have defied the prescriptions of risk experts in all kinds of ways from you know, driving too fast to thinking that um, owning a gun is actually going to make you safer. And that's a really great segue to kind of my next and our final conversation point here, which is I, I want to kind of hear from you about your critical takeaways about how we can move through this, both as individuals and as people trying to act as a collective. When we talk about the curve, we we're talking about acting as a collective. And I think what you so historically pointed out there was that there's been disagreements about what that collective is and who's in it and what the representation represents and what box it, it draws around who. So if you could just kind of tell us what you think is the most important and critical takeaway for navigating this kind of world of what I'm thinking of as dueling representations between totally different oriented, future making, uncertainty bound representations. Well, first of all, I'll say that uh, to me as a risk historian, I think it's, it's absolutely remarkable how many people have, um, you know, believed the, the dominant argument of experts that we really do need to flatten the curve. Um, in, in a larger historical context, it, that is unusual because it's more often been the case that many people didn't believe these kinds of arguments or at least didn't believe that, they, that, the, that the argument applied to them. Um, so in that way, it really is working. Um, and you can, it's a feedback loop, right? So it's working, you can see it's working because as those graphics this morning in the time showed, you know, places are flattening the curve. Um, however, there are, as you point out, these competing um, claims to authority. And I think the rules, same rules that apply to all kinds of information in our information-laden society apply here, which is one has to consider the source. Um, that, you know, uh, people have a, other agendas for manipulating this kind of information. Unfortunately, in our own era, um, in, in heated debates, everybody can go find their own expert for hire who's maybe willing to say what they're paid to say. Um, 
And that is happening to a certain extent in this moment as well. Um, I also wanted to make the point that, you know, we are our own historians for this moment, and this is an important aspect of this history, which historians of science and technology are really going to want to know about in the future. Um, and I'm very excited about the various um, projects that are going on right now in which information um, and pr essentially primary sources are being collected for future historians. So I really want to encourage anybody who's listening to this to um, think about saving information and also of sharing it in some of the digital projects that are going on right now about the history of the COVID-19 crisis. Wow, that's some critical advice. We are our own historians. How, mm -hmm. how meta. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Arwen Mohan, for coming in. It was fantastic to talk to you about the history of risk representation. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Bucky. <laughs>